Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. I will say, unlike a lot of other episodes, if you have not listened to or watched last week's episode on 1978's Superman the Movie, I would recommend watching it first because this week we are continuing the saga with two versions of the same film. Richard Lester's Superman 2, which was released here in the United States in 1981, and Richard Donner's Superman 2, The Donner Cut, which was released in 2006. The story really does begin in last week's episode, including the casting of the film, the original search for a director, the hiring of Richard Donner, and the beginning of the frayed relationship between Donner and the producers of the movie. So if you haven't seen last week's episode, I do highly recommend that you do so. Also, as always, if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, we'd love for you to become an audio subscriber as well. You can find all my movies on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere you like to find audio podcasts. And if you're an audio listener and you want to see the video of the show, you can find us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Picking up where we left off last week, with the phenomenal success of 1978's Superman the Movie, it was an easy decision for the producers of the film, Ilya and Alexander Salkind and Pierre Spangler, to return and finish the process that had already begun of filming Superman 2. And according to different sources, up to 75% of the film had already been shot under director Richard Donner before the decision was made to stop filming Superman the movie and Superman 2 simultaneously and focus on getting the first film ready for release in 1978. Most people involved with the production assumed that Richard Donner would return to finish what he'd started and wrap out shooting for the second movie. But as we mentioned last week, the relationship between Donner and the producers of the film had already started to fray over scheduling and budget overruns. And this relationship had gotten so sour that a third party was brought on as a liaison between the producers and Richard Donner. That third party was another director who was known for his work with the Beatles in the 1960s and who already had a working relationship with the Salkins with the movies The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, director Richard Lester. Dick Lester was brought in as a go-between, and my theory was they were clearly waiting for Dick to either quit or to get so obstreperous that they were going to fire him and then Dick Lester was going to take over. Production was set to resume on Superman 2 in early 1979, but what happens next varies depending on who you talk to. Richard Donner claims that he was more than willing to return to the project, but that the relationship between himself and the producers was already too far gone for that to happen. I was prepared to go back and finish it, but um, my relationship with the Salkinds had soured to the degree that... Uh, it was going to be almost impossible. Donner later claimed that he was removed from the project via telegram and that he was never directly contacted by the producers. If you were to ask Ilya Salkind and Pierre Spengler, as they elaborate on in a commentary for Superman 2, it was Donner who declined to work on the film, citing an unwillingness to work with Pierre Spengler and wanting creative control that the Salkins were unwilling to give up. Richard Donner was offered to come back and finish Superman 2, he uh, quite uh, flippantly <laughs> declared that if I, Pierre Spangler, was on the film, he, Richard Donner, would not be. 
Well, as it turned out, I stayed on the film and he didn't. Regardless of what actually happened, the result is the same, which is that Richard Donner was not chosen to helm the remainder of the shoot for Superman 2 and that Richard Lester was installed as a director. This was a controversial move among the cast and crew. Many of them had gotten very close to Richard Donner from the previous shooting period, which had lasted well over a year. And rumors abounded that this was a move that had been planned by the Salkins before production had even halted prior to the release of Superman the movie, but Salkin claims that this was never the case. It was never in the idea of anybody that Richard Lester would do the second film. I mean, it was like, how oh, we planned to have Richard Lester direct the second film. Again, this is the kind of thing that can be very uh, painful to hear because it, it, it makes us look like these schemers, which we were not in the sense that he just came to liaise and that's what he did. And again, it's a little bit of clarifications that perhaps are not that pleasant, but they're important. There was another huge change made to Superman 2, and that was the exclusion of actor Marlon Brando, who had been paid a hefty sum plus a percentage of the box office receipts to play Superman's father, Jor-El, in Superman the movie. Following the release of that film, there were financial disagreements between Brando and the producers as to how much he was paid, and if he were to appear in Superman 2, another huge amount of money would have been owed to the actor. So the producers decided to write the character of Jor-El out of Superman 2, taking his dialogue, which had already been shot, it was the first thing shot for any of the films with Richard Donner, and giving it to other characters, including random Kryptonians and Superman's mother, who was played by the returning Susanna York. And it's probably a good thing that Richard Richard Donner was not on the project at this point because this is a move that would not have sat well with him. In the commentary on the Donner cut, he talks about the fact, along with Tom Mankiewicz, that he considered Jor-El to be one of the most essential roles in the entire saga, and that he believes that he could have struck a deal with Brando to return. It was Jor-El who sent his kid to Earth. It was, and here are these people um, to save a buck, ruined what could have been. I probably would have brought Brando back to shoot pieces. Once we had finished one and we were going to go back and do two, it would have cost a couple of bucks, but it would have been worth it because once you saw your picture, you realize there are things you could do different. What they would be now, I can't tell you. Also not returning for supplemental shooting was Gene Hackman. His material as Lex Luthor had already been shot under Richard Donner for both movies, and he declined to return for additional reshoots as the script was revised. And depending on who you talk to, this was because he had a busy schedule or because he was loyal to Richard Donner and did not like that he had been replaced by Lester. Either way, the material that was revised that needed additional material from Lex Luthor was done with a patchwork of body doubles and a vocal impersonator, which is pretty obvious in different parts of the movie if you know what to look and listen for. Hey, never heard of parachutes? Even though there was technically a finished script for Superman 1 and 2 and had been from the very beginning, it had been heavily revised by creative consultant Tom Mankiewicz on the first movie, and Lester and the producers brought back original screenwriters David and Leslie Newman to craft a new opening sequence and figure out a new ending for the movie. The ending of Superman 2 had originally been Superman turning back time, but a decision was made by Donner and Mankiewicz to take this fantastic ending and put it at the end of the first movie in order to ensure that it was as big a spectacle as audiences were expecting. So when Superman 2 came back to shoot, there was definitely a need for a new ending. 
Tom Mankiewicz was asked by Warner Brothers to come back and consult on these revisions, but he declined that opportunity, even in an unofficial capacity, out of loyalty to Richard Donner. Bob Daly and uh, Terry Semmel, Terry especially came down to my office and said, would you go back to London and work with Lester and finish this up? And I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, well, could you go to London and accidentally run into Dick Lester and have dinner with him and tell him what you think he ought to do? And I said, no, I can't do that either. Production of Superman 2 resumed in September of 1979 and with much less material to shoot than had already existed, wrapped in March of 1980. In all, Richard Lester did end up shooting the majority of the footage that ended up in the theatrical cut of Superman 2, although a substantial portion of Richard Donner's footage is present as well. It's so fascinating to break down exactly what was kept and what was revised between these two cuts, and also just to sort of familiarize yourself or re-familiarize yourself with the story of Superman 2. So in order to make these comparisons, I think it's important to walk through both versions. And let's start with the versions that audiences saw in 1981 here in the United States, 1980, and other parts of the world, and that is Richard Lester's version of Superman 2. The movie starts with a recap of General Zod, Ursa, and and non being put into the Phantom Zone, but notably without Marlon Brando. You do not hear his voice. You do not see his body. They really wanted to make sure that they had no excuse to pay Brando for anything. General Zod, your only feeling was contempt for our society. Your only desire was to command. We then go into completely new material shot by Richard Lester, where Clark Kent arrives at the Daily Planet to find out that there is a hostage situation going down at the Eiffel Tower in Paris and that Lois Lane has already been dispatched to the scene to cover what's going on. Mr. Kent, a gang of terrorists seized the Eiffel Tower. The minute the story broke, I bundled her on the first Concorde out of here. If Paris is going to go gablooey, I want my best reporter right in the middle of it. Lois sneaks into the Eiffel Tower and finds herself stuck under an elevator just as the atomic bomb that's going to wipe out Paris is activated. Luckily, Superman arrives in the nick of time, saves Lois, and throws the bomb into outer space. This actually resembles a sequence that was in the script before Tom Mankiewicz did his revisions for Superman the movie and Superman 2. It was then worked back into the script by David and Leslie Newman, essentially making sure that the material that Mankiewicz had cut out of their previous version would make it to the screen. Superman's heroics have an unintended consequence, however, as the atomic bomb he throws into space frees the villains from the Phantom Zone and allows them to make their way towards Earth. This sequence of events, although altered slightly, was intended to be a cliffhanger ending for the first film back in 1978, as Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Donner explain in this commentary for the Donner Cut. The original ending of Superman 1 was that a missile flew up into space and smashed the zone of silence, releasing them, and they started to come toward Earth. Yeah, that was my idea, I remember. It was one continuous story. We then catch up with Lex Luthor and his bumbling henchman Otis in prison in a sequence that was shot entirely by Richard Donner. Luthor has invented a way to track Superman's alpha waves north and discover the location of the Fortress of Solitude and concocts a way to escape from prison using a hologram and a hot air balloon piloted by Miss Tessmacher. Luther makes his escape, but Otis is sadly left behind. In another sequence shot entirely by Donner, Zod and the other Kryptonians attack an international crew of astronauts on the moon, realizing how fragile human life is and how easily they will be able to rule on Earth. We will go there too. To rule. Finally, to rule. We then cut to a part of the movie that was directed entirely by Richard Lester, but existed in the Tom Mankiewicz version of the script, at least partially, 
Lois and Clark arrive at Niagara Falls undercover to expose a honeymoon racket only to have Superman show up to save a young boy who falls over the railing and into the falls. Lois puts together the coincidences that Superman keeps showing up where she is and where Clark Kent, more importantly, is not, and begins to suspect that her bumbling co-worker is indeed the Man of Steel. And to test this theory, she jumps into the raging waters at the bottom of the falls. Clark smartly does not reveal that he's Superman, but instead discreetly uses his powers to save Lois Lane, but still maintain his bumbling persona. But it turns out to all be for naught, because later on in the hotel room, Superman stumbles and falls into the fireplace, but isn't burned, which proves once and for all to Lois that Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. I'm in love with you. We really better talk. At the Fortress of Solitude, we actually get a mixture of Donner footage and Lester footage. The Donner footage involves everything with Gene Hackman and Valley Perrin as they arrive at the Fortress of Solitude. Lex inserts one of Superman's Kryptonian education crystals and is treated to a poetry reading from a random Kryptonian. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree who's He's not here. And then the backstory of General Zod and the other criminals by Superman's mother, Susanna York. On Earth, they would have the same powers that you have. Think of it. The first of the three. Three. Is their leader, General Zod. Count them, three supervillains. Armed with new information about other super beings that may well be headed for Earth, Luther and Miss Testmacher head south with a vocal impressionist again filling in the gaps for Gene Hackman. That explains the three alpha waves I've been getting on my black box. They'll need a contact here on Earth. In Lester footage, the Kryptonians arrive on Earth and discover even more of their powers and encounter a local sheriff played by actor Clifton James. This was kind of an inside joke to audiences because Clifton James had played this character a few different times in the movie Silver Streak and most notably in two back-to-back -back James Bond films, Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. So this is one of those things that was accessible to the audience at the time but whose meaning has been lost to a lot of people that are watching the movie today. Ursa gets into an arm wrestling match with a man in a bar, and then the U.S. military arrives, and the trio inflicts heavy damage on both the military and the town, culminating in Zod announcing to a television crew that he is now the new ruler of Earth. Is there no one on this planet to even challenge me? Now that she knows his identity, Superman is free to take Lois to his home away from home, the Fortress of Solitude, and the two share a dinner. Fully in love, Superman talks to his mother about his desire to spend the rest of his life with Lois, and she explains to him that if he wants to live with a mortal, he has to live as a mortal and give up his superpowers. Oh, my son, are you sure? Mother? I love her. Superman does give up his powers, entering a chamber that bombards him with the rays of the Kryptonian Red Sun, making him mortal. Then he and Lois Lane spend the night together and pay attention to the sequence of these events because we're going to revisit this later. With Superman distracted and now mortal, Zod is truly free to do as he pleases, defacing Mount Rushmore and then invading the White House along with Ursa and Nan. There they force the president to kneel before Zod, but the president warns him that Superman will not yield so easily. There is one man here on Earth who will never kneel before you. Who is this imbecile? I wish I knew. In footage shot by Donner, Clark and Lois stop at a diner on their way back to Metropolis and end up having an encounter with a rude trucker who mercilessly 
beats Clark up. He tastes his blood for the first time. He realizes that he is well and truly mortal. And to add insult to literal injury, Clark finds out for the first time that Zod and the other Kryptonians are on Earth and realizes that in giving up his powers, he's essentially doomed his adopted homeworld to eternal subjugation at the feet of General Zod. So he decides to walk back north to the Fortress of Solitude to see if there's any way to get his powers back. And this is where we transfer to Lester shot footage. Clark returns to the fortress and finds it empty except for one glowing green crystal. He picks up the crystal and we cut away. We see nothing else that happens after that. We then cut back to some Donner footage. Lex Luthor shows up at the White House where Zod, Ursa, and Nan are bored senseless by the fact that they are now rulers over people who pose no actual threat to them. Luthor knows what Zod really wants and offers to bring him the one thing that his heart desires, Superman. And Luthor is willing to do this in exchange for one tiny thing. Australia. The Kryptonians and Luthor break into the Daily Planet in a sequence that is actually intercut with footage that Donner shot and other footage that Lester shot years later. And it's really easy to spot the difference because at the beginning of the scene, Jimmy Olsen's hair is very poofed up Kramer style. And when the Kryptonians arrive, it's very flat. So there really wasn't a whole lot of effort put into matching the appearance of these actors. And it's kind of curious as to why Lester chose to reshoot what seems like pretty meaningless footage, other than the fact that I think he really did want to make sure that he put his mark on this movie. Superman then shows up having been somehow repowered off screen and offers Zod the chance to take him on along with Ursa and Nan. And what follows is a protracted battle scene around Metropolis where for a while a bunch of super beings punch each other and cause some damage but don't really do any damage to each other until Zod realizes Superman's real weakness. He actually cares for these Earth people. Like pets? I suppose so. Zod and the other Kryptonians begin applying pressure to Superman by attacking the city and the citizens of Metropolis themselves. And this is where some of the most controversial Richard Lester touches come in. While the trio is using their super breath to inflict hurricane force winds on the city, we see little punctuations of slapstick comedy. There's an ice cream cone that blows off and hits somebody in the face. A man's toupee blows off. There's a guy talking on a phone in a phone booth that gets blown over and he gets dragged up the street. A guy on roller skates is rolling backwards. It's very weird because these citizens are, are, are very, very much in mortal danger, and yet we have these touches of slapstick comedy, and this is something that Richard Lester really loved to do in his films. It was almost the polar opposite of what Richard Donner's approach was. Donner, as we mentioned last week, had a motto, verisimilitude, which meant truth, reality, making sure that everything was grounded in something real. Whereas Lester enjoyed putting these little pieces of humor throughout everything that he did, whether it necessarily made sense to put them there or not. This has been one of the big sticking points between people when they talk about the differences between Richard Lester and Richard Donner's version of the movie. Superman, and a great performance touch by Christopher Reeve, is physically sickened by the fact that he's indirectly causing pain to the citizenry of Metropolis and flies away, leaving the bystanders to think that Superman has just abandoned them and run away. Luckily for Zod, Lex Luthor knows where Superman is headed, and Zod, Ursa, Nan, Luthor, and Lois Lane all take flight to the Fortress of Solitude, and this is another hybrid sequence. The first half was shot by Richard Lester, and that's pretty obvious because Lex Luthor is nowhere to be found 
found in any of this action. And you even see them dropping off a body double, again, with a vocal impersonator to explain why you can't see him during any of this action. And it's kind of a weird sequence. Superman throws a kind of a cellophane S at Nan, who gets all wrapped up in it. Then there are hologram Superman, but also it seems like all the other Kryptonians can appear and disappear at will. I always found this weird even when I was a kid. By the end of it, Superman has been able to get Zod into a chokehold, but is convinced to let him go by the threat to kill Lois Lane from the other Kryptonians. And this is where we stitch together the Lester footage and the Donner footage with the arrival of Gene Hackman's body double and vocal impersonator. And you can almost, again, when you know what you're looking for, see where the splice point is. Hi, guys. Uh, sorry, I'm... We have no more use for this one. Kill him. Me? Lex Luthor? Superman, anticipating Luthor's deviousness, pulls kind of a double switch here. He lets Luthor in on the information that he's trying to get the supervillains into the Red Sun Chamber in order to have their power stripped away. Luthor, of course, immediately reveals this information to Zod, who then forces Superman to go into the chamber himself, making him mortal once more. But of course, it's a triple cross, meaning that the Kryptonians outside the chamber are subjected to Krypton's rays, stripping them of their powers. All three of them are then thrown, punched, or fall into the chasms of the Fortress of Solitude, seemingly to their death, although we'll find out more about this later, and Superman flies Luther back to prison. Back in Metropolis with Lester footage, Lois Lane mourns the fact that she and Superman will never be able to truly share a life together, and this really is a great performance from Margot Kidder in this scene. Yes, I am selfish when it comes to you. I am selfish. And I'm jealous of the whole world. To spare Lois the pain, Superman gives her what I can only describe as an amnesia kiss. He kisses her and somehow through his powers is able to wipe her memory of everything that happened, including her finding out that Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. It's never really explained how this works, but keep in mind that David and Leslie Newman did have to figure out a new way to end the movie because the ending that had already been written was cannibalized for the last film. Still, even given that, I've always thought that this was a really strange way to solve this particular problem. What's happening in the world? With Lois now once again ignorant of his true identity, Superman returns to the diner where he was beat up by the trucker and gives him a taste of his own medicine in a sequence that was shot by Donner. Then, in a sequence that was shot by Lester, Superman flies a repaired dome and American flag to the White House and promises the president that he will never again disappear for the citizens of Earth. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. Then we get the now trademark ending of Superman flying out into space, looking over the earth and smiling, and the credits roll with an immediate promise that a new Superman adventure is 100% in the works. As the production of Superman 2 was being completed, there was apparently some real question over whose name or names would be credited as the director of the film. According to some reports, Richard Lester never believed that his name would appear on the film because he thought he was just doing additional material for the movie that Donner had already shot. But according to Donner, he was offered the chance to be credited as a co-director with Lester, but declined after seeing the film. Somebody called and said, would you like your name on it? And that's when I said, well, let me see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I rem and you know what? I got as far as that, now I remember, the Eiffel Tower and that whole opening, mm -hmm. and I said, forget it. Superman 2, with Richard Lester as the sole credited director, had a strategic worldwide rollout with the producers aiming to release the film during the peak movie-going season around the world. That's why it was released in Australia in December of 1980. It wouldn't open in North America until June of 1981. If you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. 
the adventure continues in Superman 2. While Superman 2 did not reach the same heights at the box office as the original film, it was still a massive success, grossing almost $200 million worldwide off a budget of about $50 million. Audiences liked it, and so did critics, with some even proclaiming it better than the original film. Our next movie, we step way up in class. It's the summer's biggest hit. It's Superman 2, and it's just delightful, a sequel that stands on its own. This is no ripoff. I enjoyed it even more than the original Superman film. I believed a man could fly, but I didn't believe he could make any money at the box office. So <laughs> now that the series is a success, and there is going to be a Superman 3, it's interesting to think how easily this whole thing could have gone wrong. Along with the existing cast, Terrence Stamp's General Zod in particular was singled out as a great villain, and for a long time, Superman 2 was considered one of the best, if not the best, superhero sequels of all time, particularly at a time when there weren't as many comic book-based movies as there are right now. But a weird thing started to happen in the early 21st century. As the original film roles for Superman the movie were being uncovered for the film to be remastered in HD and for different home video releases, people began to discover just how much footage Richard Donner shot that had never seen the light of day. Superman the movie in particular was infamous for having multiple versions, international versions, television versions, featuring scenes from the theatrical film that had never appeared in theaters. But this was different. Entire sequences, entire parts of the movie were found sitting in cans that had never appeared anywhere. In 2004, a website called The Forbidden Zone called for fans of Superman to write in on June 19th, 2004, the 23rd anniversary of the release of the film in North America, to demand that Warner Brothers release the Donner cut of the film. The letter writing campaign was so successful that Warner Brothers put out a statement saying that they'd heard the voice of the fans, but that certain legal complications prevented them from taking immediate action, but they would look into doing what they could. In many ways, what happened with the Donner cut eerily mimics the exact sequence of events that we're seeing now with Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League, though it should be noted that Richard Donner's departure from the project was under far different circumstances than Zack Snyder's departure from Justice League, and that Lester's cut of Superman 2 was received warmly by fans and critics, unlike the version of Justice League that ended up hitting theaters. But the end result was the same. In 2005, led by editor Michael Tao, Warner Brothers began finding and restoring the Richard Donner footage to release a Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. And what might surprise some people is that Donner was not initially involved in this process. At some points, he said he had absolutely no interest in participating at all. And according to the commentary on the Donner cut of Superman, this was really because of two factors. One of them was the time and distance from the project, and the second one was a real desire on his part to not watch Lester's version of the film. I didn't remember what we shot at that point. I didn't remember the picture. And I had never really, I had seen part of two and decided uh, I didn't want to see the rest of it. And uh, that was it. And then I guess we can thank the internet and Michael Thor. One thing that Richard Donner has made abundantly clear is that his cut of the movie is not fully representative of the vision that he had for the film. First and foremost, there's still a lot of footage in the movie that was shot by Richard Lester, footage that Donner says over and over during the commentary he would have shot differently. So a lot of the stuff involving Zod and the other Kryptonians, Donner's actually not a huge fan of because it's not the way that he would have shot it, but it has to be included in order for the movie to make sense. There are a lot of other compromises along the way due to the fact that he was unable to reshoot really anything because so much time had passed. And so the Richard Donner cut is really more of a, a polished representation, a very advanced idea of the movie he could have made 
if he'd had all the resources and using all of the resources available to him at that time. This differs a little bit from the approach that we're hearing with Zack Snyder's Justice League cut, where he's presenting this movie as the definitive version of the movie that he would have made. And this is a key area of difference when we're talking about comparing these two things. As mentioned in our rundown of Superman 2, there are a lot of things that are the same in the Donner cut, but there's some very key differences. So again, I think it's important to run down through the Richard Donner cut and see just what those differences are. The Donner cut also opens with a flashback to the opening scene of Superman the movie, but this one does incorporate the Brando footage from the first film. We also get a glimpse inside the Phantom Zone as the villains are imprisoned, and we see them witness both the destruction of Krypton and Kal-El's spaceship zooming past them as they float through space. The first critical difference in the Richard Donner cut is that the Paris terrorism sequence is completely omitted. Instead, we see scenes from the first film and we see Superman flying the missile that was supposed to hit Hackensack, New Jersey out into space and letting it go. But the big revelation here is that it's this missile that frees the three Kryptonians from the Phantom Zone. This directly ties the events of Superman the movie to the events of Superman 2. And it's this chain of events, with Zod yelling free and the supervillains flying toward Earth, that was first pitched as a cliffhanger ending for Superman the movie. We also have a completely new sequence in the Daily Planet taking place a day or two after Luther's failed attempt to knock California into the ocean, where Lois immediately becomes suspicious of Clark Kent being Superman. She draws glasses, a suit, and a hat on a picture of Superman in the newspaper and realizes that her co-worker looks uncannily like the Man of Steel. And much like Lester's Superman 2 cut, she decides to stake her own life on this assumption, jumping out of the window in Perry White's office. Lois, what are you doing? You wouldn't let me die, Superman. Clark runs down at super speed, slows Lois's fall with his breath, unfurls a canopy that allows her to bounce and jump into a fruit stand, and then gets back upstairs before she notices that he is actually the one that saved her. Clark! Lois, what have you done? This is also a bit of a compromise sequence because we have original footage that Donner shot. We also have some body double footage, a couple of CGI shots, and some ADR that assemble it in places where Donner was not able to get things like special effects shots done. The scenes of Luther and Otis in prison, Luther's escape, the attack on the astronauts on the moon, and Lois and Clark's arrival in Niagara Falls, although a bit shortened, unfurl basically as they did in Lester's version. Lex and Miss Teskmacher still break into the Fortress of Solitude, but it's Jarrell's image that they see imparting knowledge about Earth. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree and giving the backstory of Zod and the other Kryptonians. And we also see Luther begin to formulate his plan to be their co-conspirator on Earth. On Earth, each of them would have the identical powers that you have. Think of it. Three supervillains, all three with the same power he has. The rescue of the little boy at Niagara Falls unfolds pretty much the same way as it does in Lester's cut, though the scene is cut short after Superman leaves. And we also get the arrival of the Kryptonians on Earth, although Nan's comical attempts to use his heat vision are cut, as are a lot of Clifton James's riffs as the country sheriff. This next sequence is probably the biggest compromise in the Richard Donner cut. It takes place after Superman has saved the little boy, 
Lois Lane is once again suspicious that Clark Kent is Superman after noticing that he wasn't there and that Superman just happened to show up where they were. So she pulls a gun on Clark in their hotel room and shoots him, forcing him to reveal that he is in fact the Man of Steel, only for Lois to reveal that her gun was loaded with blanks. If you'd been wrong, Clark Kent would have been killed. With a blank? This scene is actually taken from two different filmed screen tests. One of them is Margot Kidder's, one of them is Christopher Reeves. And you can see that Reeves' wardrobe changes from shot to shot even during this scene. It is very distracting. And more than anything else in this cut, this is representative of the movie Donner would have made had he gotten a chance to shoot this scene. Donner and Mankiewicz chose to include it in the movie for a couple of reasons. Number one, they thought the scene was so vital to the story of Lois and Clark that it's the one that they chose to auditioned the actors with. Why, with thousands of children potentially falling off something lethal somewhere else in the world, why would Superman suddenly appear here, today, at Niagara Falls? The other reason is that Richard Donner really just didn't like the idea that Superman would stumble into a fire and not burn his hand. They made this one of the stupidest things I've ever seen with his hand in a fire. Yes. Forgetting a note. And it never paid off then. Margot's mm -hmm. line in the opening was, I bet my life. Mm -hmm. This time I'm betting yours. Mm-hmm. So we never shot the scene. You'll actually see this time and again, and I think it's the closest Donner gets to unveiling his full antipathy toward what Richard Lester did with Superman 2. Any chance Donner had to not use Richard Lester footage, he didn't, even if it might be to the movie's detriment. As in Lester's cut, Superman and Lois fly to the Fortress of Solitude and have dinner, although this sequence is trimmed down a bit. And Zod and the Kryptonians arrive in the small town and wage war on the military, although the scene where Ursa gets into an arm wrestling match with a local townsperson is also cut. One critical rearrangement of the sequence of events, however, is that Superman and Lois Lane sleep together before he has his powers taken away. And this is very key because it also gives a hint as to the chronology that would be established in Superman Returns and perhaps a clue that that movie considered the Donner cut of Superman 2 to be the canonical one. In another critically different sequence, Superman still gives up his powers, but does so by talking to his father, Jor-El, played by Marlon Brando. My son, I have tried to anticipate your every question. This was one I'd... I'd hoped you would not ask. This is a much longer and harsher conversation with Jor-El calling upon his son's higher sense of duty and calling his son selfish. Is this how you repay their gratitude? By abandoning the weak, the defenseless, the needy for, for the sake of your selfish pursuits. Selfish? After admonishing his son one more time to think before surrendering his powers, Jor-El activates the Red Sun Chamber and Superman's powers are stripped away. And during this process, we get a moment where Jor-El looks up at Lois Lane, who's been watching this whole thing. And I think this is a great moment. This is actually my favorite moment in the entire Donner Cut. It's such a chilling and effective thing. The idea that even though he's a memory, Jor-El knows what's happening. He knows why his son is doing this, and he's not happy about it. I love this little touch. I wish that it was in the theatrical version of the movie, but Brando wasn't, so this one couldn't be. The next few sequences play out largely as they did in Lester's version. Zod and the Kryptonians attack the White House, although in this version, Zod grabs a gun and joins in on the carnage, smiling at his own sadistic nature. Clark gets beaten up at the diner and sees Zod on television, and Luther arrives at the White House to team up with them, although this sequence I think hits a little harder because when Luther invokes the name of Jor-El, it makes much more sense considering that Luther has actually seen Jor-El. What I am bargaining with is what you do not have. 
the son of Jor-El. In another critical sequence that was reshot by Lester, Clark returns to the Fortress of Solitude to try to get his powers back. He sees the glowing green crystal, but we actually see what happens next. Jarrell, having anticipated that his son may someday make his mistake, says that he can give his last bit of energy and restore Superman's powers, but it comes at a terrible price. Once before, when you were small, I died while giving you a chance for life. And now, even though it will exhaust the final energy left within me. Father, no. Look at me, Kal-El. Kal-El can never again commune with his father, and his father's visage, his memory, will disappear from the earth. He's essentially condemning his father to a second death. And this is, I think, objectively better than the Richard Lester version. First of all, we never even see what happens in the Lester version, and I don't understand why they never tried to give any explanation for how Superman gave his powers back. But the idea that you, number one, know how he got his powers back, and the idea that you understand the cost of that makes this story have so much more weight. The idea that Superman's mistake causes himself to be exiled once and for all on Earth, to be truly alone on Earth, and for Krypton's last remnant to be wiped off the face of the planet is such a heavy price. I wish that they could have just figured out some way to do this in the theatrical version because everything makes so much more sense this way. The loss of this storyline and the Marlon Brando scenes, I think, is the biggest consequence of replacing Donner and choosing to excise Brando for monetary reasons. And I think it actively makes Richard Lester's Superman 2 a worse movie. Back at the Daily Planet, we see Donner's original scene prior to Superman's arrival. There is a different line when Superman arrives to challenge Zod to a fight. General, haven't you ever heard of freedom of the press? Superman. And a lot of the fight plays out as before. There is one extra beat, or I should say a different beat, where they kick Superman into the torch of the Statue of Liberty. That's just an extra landmark to be featured in the sequence. But really, the biggest difference is that the zany comedy beats, while the Kryptonians are blowing wind into the streets of Metropolis, are almost completely gone. The film's climax still takes place in the Fortress of Solitude, though without the extra fighting that was added by Lester. It's a little more psychological, where Zod says that if Superman does not submit to him, then he will cause the death of millions of people on earth you will live kal forever as my slave if not then others will pay for your obstinate attitude beginning with this lowest person superman tricks the villains as he does in the luster cut depowers and defeats them there is a new sequence after this however where superman destroys the fortress of solitude with his heat vision cutting the last tie to Krypton, and then he and Lois have a really good discussion. And again, this is a great lost acting performance between Kidder and Reeve about how they're never really going to be able to share life together. Those people need you. Do you think I don't understand that? Superman then drops Lois off at her apartment, and she's utterly devastated by the events of the film. There he goes, kid. Up, up, and away. It's here that we have probably the second biggest compromise of the Donner cut, where Superman solves the problem by replicating what he did in the last movie. He turns time back, he undoes all the damage in Metropolis, he wipes Lois's memory, and he re-imprisons the Kryptonians in the Phantom Zone, and then comes back to Earth and starts everything back over again. As mentioned, this is of course a duplicate ending to how Superman the movie ended, because this is originally how this movie was supposed to end. And Donner and Mankiewicz have been very clear about the fact that this is not how they would have ended the movie had they been in charge. It's just that 
this was the ending they had the footage for, and they really didn't want to use the Lester Amnesia Kiss ending in their cut of the movie. Because I remember we so did say take, it's the biggest effect that we have. Yeah, let's take two, put it on one, and we'll come up with a new one. We'll for, come up with a new one if they have two. But yeah. they never asked us to come up with a new one for two. No. So now you will see it again in a matter of moments. The next day at the Daily Planet, Lois has forgotten everything save for a vague feeling that she's forgetting something. I feel like I'm sitting on the single most important story of my career, and I can't remember what it is. Lois then sends Clark out for pizza, and he returns to the diner where he had the encounter with the trucker before and takes his revenge. Now, this makes no logical sense whatsoever because due to the events of the ending of this movie, Superman has turned back time, so he never had this encounter with the trucker. So it doesn't really make sense that the guy talks about the fact that they just had the place fixed up. Take it easy, will you? I just had this joint fixed. It cost me a fortune. Those events never happened. I wonder how they would have gotten around this if they'd rewritten the ending of the film. It also just means that some random guy showed up and threw him down a counter. I'm not saying this trucker's not a jerk, but Superman's taking his revenge on a guy who never actually did anything wrong to him by the rules of time travel. Again, these are compromises that Donner had to make because he didn't have the ability to craft anything new. He was constrained by what he had already. The movie then ends on the punchline to this scene as it appears in Lester's cut. Oh, I've been, uh... Working out. We go up to space, Superman looks down at the Earth, smiles, and flies away. While this doesn't represent and could never represent the actual movie that Richard Donner would have made if he'd stayed in charge, he says in the commentary that it actually put to rest a lot of his open wounds about being replaced on Superman 2. It's very exciting for me to finally see two completed with my name on it. Maybe not as I said, the way I would have done it, haven't given the total opportunity, but still. A major thrill and a lot of pride in my part to have that on my resume. I can go out and tell people now, maybe I'll get another job. I shot one and two. I think that the Richard Donner cut is a companion piece to Richard Lester's Superman 2. I think that together they are parts of one whole. But I also think there are enough compromises in the Donner cut that I could not elevate it as a replacement to Richard Lester's film. I think there are several parts of the movie that are demonstrably better than what Lester did. And I think that if Donner had been the director of Superman 2, that the finished product would have been better than what Lester produced. But I also don't think that Richard Lester made a bad film. I still like his version of Superman 2, and I couldn't endorse completely wiping it off the face of the earth to replace with Richard Donner's cut. It is an approximation of a finished film, but it isn't exactly a finished film. I'm glad the fans were heard. I'm glad that we got to see this version of the movie, and I hope that this discussion is able to continue as positively for Zack Snyder's version of Justice League as the discourse has been for the Richard Donner and Richard Lester cuts of this film. But the greatest loss of all may not be Richard Donner's version of Superman 2, but Donner and Mankiewicz's version of the sequels that followed. Lester would return to the director's chair for Superman 3, a film that was critically panned but commercially successful, and then the Christopher Reeve era would end with 1987's Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, a low-budget commercial and critical flop. But it didn't necessarily have to be that way. According to Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz on the commentary for the Donner Cut, there exists a reality where the two of them would have stayed at the helm of the Superman franchise for years more down the line. We had talked, we had about four stories in our head. Mm -hmm. We could have kept this thing going. Well, they did. Warner's asked us after three to go back and do yeah, the next yeah. one. And we, Dick and I had dinner and we decided yeah, not to yeah, do no. it. We were both doing other things, and also that we'd sort of done everything in the Well, they had ruined it by that point. I mean, we had taken it out of it. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. you were going to direct a couple. 
A look at what Donner and Mankiewicz would have done with the Superman franchise past Superman 2 is maybe the most intriguing what if of all. But sadly, all of the letter writing and re-editing in the world will never be able to make that vision a reality. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to run over all the special features and every version of the movie I have on Blu-ray. I actually have two versions of Superman the movie from two different collections. One of them is a version that has the extended version of the film. That one has a commentary from Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz. The other one is a disc that has the theatrical cut of the movie. That one has a commentary from producers Ilya Salkind and Pierre Spengler. The theatrical disc also has a couple of making of documentaries that were produced in 2001 for the re-release of the saga on DVD that actually pretty thoroughly and honestly cover the production process of Superman the movie. And it has the original screen test with an introduction from casting director Lynn Stallmaster, who we talked about last week. The disc with the extended version includes a one-hour making-of documentary that was released in 1980 by the Salkins, which has a lot of great behind-the-scenes footage. It also has some Looney Tunes shorts that feature Superman-inspired themes, and it has the original Superman feature film, which ran less than an hour, Superman and the Mole Men, starring George Reeves, who played Superman on television for many years. The disc for the Lester cut of Superman 2 has a commentary from producers Ilya Salkin and Pierre Spangler. It also has a great documentary on the very influential Fleischer cartoons, which created so much of the Superman iconography that would go on to the movies. They begged DC, can we make him fly? And they were like, yeah, sure, fine. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. And so that was adopted in the comics because people expected it. It has a selection of those cartoons, along with a deleted scene of Superman making a souffle in the Fortress of Solitude with his heat vision. Guess who shot that scene? The Donner Cut disc has a commentary from Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz. It also has a documentary on the restoration process and finding and editing together all of this thought-to-be-lost footage. And it contains some of the deleted scenes from Superman 2, including the famous one that shows that the Kryptonians were in fact not killed. It shows them being arrested by the Arctic police along with Lex Luthor. It also has a deleted sequence starring Ned Beatty, Gene Hackman, and Valley Perrin where we see Lex Luthor escape from prison once again at the end of the movie. And that wraps up my look at Superman the movie, Superman 2, and Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. Next week, we're going to continue looking at the cinematic evolution of Superman with 2006's Superman Returns, a movie that sought to revive Superman by continuing the storyline that Donner had established in these first two films and evoking the style, reusing the score. Marlon Brando even comes back. We will look at the promises and the pitfalls of that approach next week. Thank you so much for watching. Once again, if you're listening to us and want to see the video, you can see us on the Shmoda Entertainment Network. And if you're watching us, please become an audio subscriber on Stitcher Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with Superman Returns, but until then, it's time to get back on the show. See you next time. Flight is what really captures people's imagination. I mean, to take uh, two or three running steps and soar into the air. I mean, that's everybody's dream.